If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Hey everybody, the October 2022 Roundup is brought to you by Fun Again Games. And hello everybody, how was your October? Did you have a nice Halloween? I hope so. We certainly had a very busy month. We're talking about over 30 games that were covered on the channel for the month of October. I have to say over 30 because I'm not sure, I haven't actually added up exactly how many games we are going to be ranking for you in this episode of the monthly Roundup. But as always, we'll be starting with our least favorite, ending with our most favorite game of the month. You'll be hearing from Shay and Kimberly and Ruel for the first time. And I can't wait to tell you about all this gaming goodness. I mean, I think October is definitely the high water mark for the year. I thought September was big, but oh my gosh. October just blew it all away, and some very, very cool gaming was to be had. But before we get to that, folks, you may have noticed it's the month of November, and you may be starting to think about a holiday gift giving. Well, if you have any gamer geeks in your friends and family, and you'd like to get a really great gift, can I suggest my wife's uh, Etsy Gamer Glass store, which you can get to from gamerglass.art. There's a link for it down in the show notes. And right now, for the month of November, she is running a 20 discount for the year 2022 on all of her Meeple-themed items. Uh, Meeple-themed jewelry, Meeple-themed figurines. Um, If you go to GamerGlass.art and you see anything on that site that has a Meeple on it, except for the Mega Meeples, uh, which are these really huge cast glass Meeples, every Meeple-based item except for that, you can get at 22% off if you use the code HOLIDAY22 in the special code space. And so we just thought we'd that. And I haven't actually mentioned this for quite a while, folks, but we still have some of these exclusive Rotto Runs Everdell cards that replace the regular messenger from the uh, um, the one of the expansions. I forget I forget which one. Pearlbrook, Pearlbrook, right. So instead of uh, having a messenger run across your bridge, you can have Rotto run across your bridge uh, saying, live and let live as it goes by. If you want to get those, uh, they are available for free if you order anything from Jen's Etsy shop and you use Everdell not in the uh, discount code, but in the comments to the creator section. So, uh, hey, you might be doing some holiday gift shopping. You'll probably find a lot of really great ideas at GamerGlass.art. Okay, and with that out of the way, folks, we've waited long enough. Let's hear from Shay. Shay, what did you play? Hey folks, so I only played a couple of games this month um, because I've just been really slammed with um, uh, work for my own channel, RTFM, uh, and that's also why I'm doing an iPhone video right now instead of the normal setup. Anyway, uh, the two games I played this month, I'll start off with my number two game, was uh, the uh, Skyrim Adventure game. Now, this is a game that I think is going to be really appealing to people who are big fans of Skyrim, um, and it is a game that is cooperative, and it's got this big campaign that you go through, and it is a kind of game that really lets you play however you want to play. It's very sandboxy, and it doesn't punish, you know, failure for uh, the various, you know, missions that you go on while still having a very interesting timing system. I did a fun uh, dual final thoughts on this uh, with Rado, so definitely check that out if you're interested in Skyrim at all. Um, But for me, it was a little bit less uh, complex than I would prefer for for a game of that scale. 
Uh, so that's my number two, Skyrim the Adventure Game. But the number one game I played uh, was Life of the Amazonia. This is a very, very interesting game. It is a game about, you know, uh, seeding the Amazon rainforest with life and it has a, a really interesting bag building mechanism whereby, you know, it's Bag buildings, you start off with some you know, limited resources, you use those to get more resources, and then you use those resources to pull in animals of different types, which all score in different ways. It reminded me a lot of uh, Cascadia, though a, definitely a bit more complex, and also a little bit of uh, Ecos. First Continent, uh, which, uh, but without the, the like bingo aspect of that. I, I thought it was a really, really fun game. It has beautiful animal miniatures, and uh, it's something that I absolutely recommend. And I should also uh, mention while I'm here that, uh, again, the reason I, I was you know, only covering a couple games is because I was hard at work making my PAX Premier Second Edition tutorial, which you can check out on RTFM uh, right now. Um, anyway, that's all I've got, uh, so I'll pass it back. Thanks so much, guys. See you later. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Kimberly here, and I'm excited to share with you the five games that I did a run through for in the month of October. So super, super busy month. But first I wanted to mention a game that I missed in my roundup for September, and it's a good game, just absolutely slipped my mind. Big Top Rumble is that game, and what a lovely theme paired with this wonderful open drafting collection where you're trying to put on acts and these acts have performers and they also have these other kind of modifying cards that allow them to attract more audience members. Wonderful bag drawing in that game as well. You're drawing cubes for your audience members. So many features that I personally really appreciate as a gamer. So wanted to just throw it out, throw that out there and see I've forgotten. I'm really sorry about that. But the next thing I want to mention is that in October... I was fortunately uh, able to have some of my final thoughts with Richard, and that was really, really cool. So for Roll to the Top Journeys and Northgard Uncharted Lands, we shared final thoughts and he asked me great questions, and we really just talked about those games together. And so that was a brand new feature that I really appreciated, and I hope you do too. Let us know in the comments what you think about that, um, and hopefully we can keep that up for a lot of these final thoughts with these games. So moving on to my list for October, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed these games. It was really, really hard for me to rank these, and so I will just simply tell you the order I have them in, but know that they are all really, really good quality games. So my number five is Roll to the Top Journeys, and I love this game. So I am familiar with this game, and I think the Journeys um, brand new release gives me what I had in the first release and then some. And the and then some really makes the game great. So I think the quality of production is just up a notch for sure. I think they worked on the die, they changed the D4, and they also added brand new features to advanced boards. And in this game, players are simply rolling collective dice and everybody simultaneously is going to apply those dice to their board. 
everyone plays on the same journey, so you're not playing on all different maps, but you just pick one at the beginning, and you have to roll to the top starting with low numbers, and you have to stack numbers on top of other numbers that are either equal to or lower than. So you're starting low, and you're going up high, so you're ascending in value. You can add dice, you can not use dice. It's a lovely, lovely roll and write game, and when you have the dry erase boards, psh, so replayable, so fun. You pull it out and it's a half hour game easy and it's super, super shareable because the start of the game is just you go, you play. You teach that rule that I just told you and the game is on. There's very, very little setup time and, and explanation of the rules. So I like the game so much, yet I still put it at my number five because I find there are some great games this month. So I want to spend some more time on those. Number four is Northgard Uncharted Lands. I like this game like I do. There are some really, really cool features about it. It's one of those big games where you pull it out and you've got to have space in the center of the table because you're going to build this, this beautiful tile-based exploration lands with different goods like wood and apples and uh, little tomes. Uh, and then you also have the possibility for monsters. So you have these little caves and pawpaws. There are all these different dotted lines that create territories. And players are going to put their figures out in these spaces to gather resources and, of course, to move into other people's areas to take them over. And so there's definitely conflict here. And there's some dice resolution, but not fully. It just is this interesting titch of, of fate, a little bit of luck with the dice. So you can go in pretty prepared, but there might be a chance that dice changes things just a little bit. I like that feature, but the thing I like the most about this game is that it's a deck builder. And every round you play, you get to add a brand new, totally unique card to your deck that nobody else gets. That gives you victory points and super cool actions. And then you also have a clan, and that particular clan that you, that you play with gives you yet again a focus and a special ability that gives you two upgradable cards. I think the game is just lovely. I mean, I love it. I think it's great with fewer players. I think it's really great with, with more players because of the dynamic it changes. But the game itself is its core, just building up these cards and building up your deck while still having that presence out there uh, on the map really, really cool. So I think it's a, a fantastic, um, a fantastic game yet again, still number four. So let's move on to my number three. It is Harrow County, the game of Gothic conflict. And the thing that really captures this game for me, the one that, the reason why this one comes in at third is a combination of two things. The first thing is I like that the game is built and designed for two. And sometimes it's just really hard to get a juicy strategy game that has all the same setup and components and bits and pieces as a big multiplayer game, but just for two people. So I love that it's got a lot of different characters that you can play inside of one of two factions. And the game will grow as you continue playing it by adding a third player. And so you can actually make this a two or three player game. And that's just so rare. I like it. I like that feature so much. Now, the other thing that I like too is that it has a cube tower fight resolution. And I don't know if you've seen my uh, top five mechanics at my channel, Tabletop Tolson, but you will see that I think it's in my top two mechanics. It's on my top five list, but I love 
cube towers and dice towers for resolution. I love it so much. It just kind of, when I first played Wallenstein and then Shogun, I think that's really what introduced me to that mechanism. And I just like it. I don't know. You just scoop them up and you just go and you just drop everything down. It's, it's lovely. Some things get stuck in there and some things come out later. So I love that because it's better than rolling a die when a die is a one-off and if you lose something, you don't ever get the chance to have that thing happen that should have happened because the, the cubes and the dice are still in the tower. So there, there's a possibility of that coming to fruition later. I think Harrow County also has a lovely, lovely theme. And so that's why it is in my number three position. Okay, moving on to number two. This surprised me how high it came up on my list because I am familiar with my number two. It's the solo expansion and Legends of the Deep Cards for Oceans. Now I have Oceans. I bought it back when it came out and I played it several times, really enjoyed it, love the cards, love the deep cards. I think it's got a really cool mechanism of how the game ends by going through different pools and different oceans of fish and putting them into the reef and then triggering certain uh, cards and actions that you can take in the middle and towards the end of the game. But then I kind of forgot about Oceans, to be honest. And then I got this solo expansion and I got the Legends of the Deep cards and I can't imagine playing the game without the Legends of the Deep cards. And I honestly have to say that the solo revived the game for me and made me want to play it again. And again, it really did. It made me want to just keep trying it because every time I played the solo, I kept having different experiences and I felt like the game was just at my pace. I felt like it was what I was trying to do to respond to um, the the whale and the shark characters that are part of your uh, foe opponent that you're playing in the solo expansion. And I like that the planning is all there. There's no re really weird surprise like, whoa, this was, you know, you didn't think this was going to happen because sometimes when you play with real people, they really surprise you and take you off guard and then there's not enough time to respond. Well, in the solo expansion, you see the actions every round that your opponent's going to take and you can prepare for it. You can, you know, get everything ready so that when they take their turn, you can kind of mitigate things. And I liked that so much. And I liked how the game like ramped up. Um, after the Cambrian explosion, which it ramps up for you, but it also does for them. So now you get to play twice as many and you get to age twice as many fish. And you're just keeping this wonderful ecosystem of different kinds of, uh, you know, sea creatures with all these different evolutionary traits. And I think it's just a wonderful puzzle strategy game that now has this solo expansion, and I think this solo works so well. I just do. I mean, I have to admit, I lost like every time I played, but I liked that. I liked that it was hard. <laughs> I liked that it wasn't just to hand me. It just wasn't to give me, and I had a fun time. I had a fun time with it, and I think the Legends of the Deep cards are just stunning. There are so many of them, and the way you draft them at the beginning of the game if you're playing with multiplayers and not the solo, just fantastic. I love it. I love it. I love it. So now I'm moving on to my number one. This is the game that really surprised me. This was the one I was maybe less familiar with because I'll have to tell you, Northgard I saw at Gen Con and wasn't able to play, so I was familiar with it. 
Um, Harrow County I wasn't familiar with, but I did have the opportunity to um, play the game at Gen Con. Uh, di didn't get to, but I, but I had the chance to. Um, Oceans I was familiar with, and um, uh, Roll to the Top I was. This game, my number one, just blew me away with its simplicity and with its beauty and with its mechanics. I just really like it. It's called Genpei. And thank you to everybody <laughs> on the channel who wrote in and, and corrected me. I hope this is the appropriate pronunciation uh, at this time, Genpei. So I'm going to go with that. It's a really, really cool game that I just didn't expect to like because it has this kind of all or nothing at the end when you're trying to win majority of a faction. So players start with two cards and that's it. It's a deck builder, but you have two cards and you are going to play those cards. Hopefully you can play both of them, but you play one card and then that card lets you activate one of the rondelles. And again, if you see Check out my top five mechanics on my channel because I love rondelles. I mentioned rondelles in that video. I love that. It goes way back too. Like I just feel like that's a great mechanic. So you get to move a rondelle left or right by one space or counterclockwise or clockwise. And you can take that action, which lets you maybe take a card or discard a card to then take that action to let you move this rondelle to let you take the action over here to do this. And there's this wonderful chaining and once you stop chaining, once you stop activating your cards or places out on the map, on the board, you're done. And that's your turn. So your turn can be pretty fast. I play this card and then I did this thing over here and I moved my marker up on the Emperor's track. Done. Or you play this, that, 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 that. And there's this really cool feature of playing cards down and gathering cards that give you that play, that faction's strength. So every card you have is a strength point in that particular faction for scoring. So you're going to hopefully be able to put down discs that tell you how many points you have in that particular faction's family. And if you have the most points in those places, you will win that disc. And there are five of them. And if you have the majority of those discs, you win. So you could eke out a win by getting like eight points to someone else's seven. Well, you get the disc. I mean, that's rough for the person who got seven because they got really close and didn't get any points for it at the end. But I think every time I played, it came down to a tie. And if it's a tie, it's whoever's highest up on the emperor track. And that's the center road. Now, if you uh, are on that track, you can never be on the same space as anyone else. So there's always a clear winner in this game. And I like that. It's just super done. It's like, do you have the majority? No. Did you tie? Well, then who's highest of the tie? It's a really, really great game. I love the cards. I love how easy it is. It's just so fun. Um, the rondelles are wonderful. The deck building, great. I just like it. Yeah, I like it. it. It rose to the top. It was my number one. That was my October games. Now, I have to tell you, not as much coming in November from me on the channel. So if you're interested in what I'm up to, I'm headed to Board Game Geek Convention in November, and I will have a review of that convention on my channel, Tabletop Tolson. I would love for you to come check it out. And if you're at BGG this year, please say hi. All right, that's it for me with my October Roundup. I will see you later. Hi friends, Ruel here, and I'm thrilled to be doing more run-throughs for the channel because this means we can cover even more games for you every month. Now, I played four games uh, this month for the channel and I've enjoyed them all. Thankfully, they're all excellent, but I am gonna rank them starting with my number four, 
it is evergreen. Yes, so designer Jalmer Hawk, um, he is the brains behind some very popular games and some excellent games as well, including Photosynthesis, Photosynthesis, <laughs> Railroad Inc., A King's Dilemma, and Dragon's Castle, all games that I've enjoyed in the past. Um, now, Evergreen is all about growing your biome. You're growing forests and uh, lush greenery, and you're trying to make the nicest biome, right? The most lush biome in the land. So what you're doing is drafting cards. And this is really interesting because you're drafting cards to get effects that go with your basic standard actions. So you're going to combo a bunch of stuff. And it's a really neat puzzle of trying to figure out what you want to do when and how you, how efficiently you can do it. Uh, because as you're building out your uh, forest there, it's, I mean, at its heart, it's an abstract placement game. You're trying to uh, grow forests in different uh, biomes to get um, points. But what's really interesting to me, my favorite part of the game is every time you're drafting a card to do those combos, uh, players each draft one. And at the end of each round, one card is going to go undrafted. And that's the one that gets scored. And to me, that's such a cool little tension that you're going to have uh, every round. Like, do I draft something right now for something I can do? Or do I just pass it along and maybe my opponent will get it? Or maybe it'll go pass through everyone and score at the end. Very nice game. It's excellent, solid, solid game. Uh, that's why it's number, number four, Evergreen. And moving on to my number three, Oh boy, this is like a Reese's Peanut Butter Cup. Two great tastes in one. My number three this month was Super Skill Pinball, the holiday special. Uh, so pinball and roll and write games. Two things I love and to mash them up into one, chef's kiss. It was brilliant. I mean, I absolutely love this. It really captures the fast-paced spirit of pinball uh, in a roll and write. I mean, you're rolling dice, you pick one die and write down the number and then Gravity, you know, just like in a real pinball machine, uh, brings the ball down. And what what you're doing, you start at the top of the uh, pinball table score sheet and move down, down, down until you hit the flippers at the bottom and hopefully you hit the right number so you can launch the ball back up. Oh, it's such, it's so simple yet so, uh, and so elegant, but also it just, for a Roland Wright, I've never seen another Roland Wright really capture a theme of something as closely as they've done with Super Skill Pinball. I mean, shout out to Jeff Engelstein, uh, the designer for doing this. They've uh, done a bunch of uh, different ones. Uh, you start with the initial four pack, and now they've expanded the holiday special. There's also one that was with Star Trek, which I know Richard's uh, excited to play. Uh, so there's different themes that I love. So this can really, this is an evergreen title for them. This is gonna, They're going to be doing this for years to come. And I'm glad because I really enjoy it. Um, there's a little bit of push your luck element to it. As you know, you try to shoot for certain targets. You may or may not get them. And um, just overall a fun, fun game. Now I do want to mention something in my run through. I had replaced the dice with my own dice because uh, I have a red-green color blindness. So the dice had red and green pips to them. So I, I did uh, a red and green dice for my own collection that I can see better. And then Jeff Engelstein actually reached out on Twitter and said, oh, by the way, the dice, they don't matter because you're just picking one anyways. The colors uh, have don't really come into play, and sure enough, they don't. So um, it's, it doesn't matter as far as what dice you use. As long as you have two six-sided, you're good to go. Now... I've got two other games I want to talk about. Now, I said all four of them were great, but these final two of mine just head and shoulders above the rest and actually two of the best games I've played this year. Number two is Turing Machine. This one just surprised the heck out of me. I did not expect this. It basically came out of left field for me. So just like um, the Search for Planet X a couple of years ago, 
Um, I wasn't sure if I would like it because it's a deduction game. And I'm not the biggest fan of deduction games, social deduction. Um, I always say if I'm like a detective on a case, all the bad guys, they're getting away because I'm terrible at logic and reasoning. But what Turing Machine does is really streamlines the process down. And I love that about it. It is about a Turing machine, you know, an old school computer, like a proto computer using punch cards. And it's such a neat system. To me, it's magic the way they've created this game where you're taking punch cards and depending on what uh, code you punch in, you're trying to uh, deduce a three digit code, one through five. And you're, you, what, you depend, what you put down on the um, Turing machine you're going to ask questions, and based on what number you have, it's going to give you a positive or a negative, a true or false. And then based on those questions that you've answered, you're going to use your logic and reasoning skills to deduce that number. Now, as you go on, you know, you go round after round, you're going to get more information. The object of the game is to get that code as soon as you can, as fast as possible. Multiplayer game, you try and be the first player. In a solo game, which I did here on the channel and I absolutely loved, was you're playing against a machine and the machine will have um, like it'll tell you like how many moves it was able to do it in and um, what's great is the app or the website that you go to it literally has millions of puzzles from easy to uh, standard to difficult and you can play this there's a talk about infinite replayability you just go to the app or the website and boom Pick a puzzle and go. And that's what I did here on the channel. Um, they, they do come with 20, uh, yeah, it's 20 puzzles in the rule book, which, you know, to get you going, easy to difficult. But once you do those in the rule book, again, just go to the website. You've got a ton of ton of replayability. I played this game seriously. Besides the run through, I played it nearly a dozen times solo. I love it so much. I've also played it at three players. A great experience, and it always takes about twenty minutes. It does. It's a really quick paced game. That's why it's my number two for this month, Turing Machine. But there was one more game that stood like just. It was probably it's one of my favorite games of this year, uh, Turing Machine, and this one. But this one by far made the biggest impression. I loved it so much. My number one this month is Splendor Duel. Yes, folks, Bruno Cathala is back. He's done again. He has taken a classic gateway game, just like he did with Seven Wonders, and made Seven Wonders Duel. What he's done with Splendor and Splendor Duel is take a classic gateway game, made Streamlight, uh, punched it down to a two-player experience, and made it even better. And I, it's it just it blows me away that he can do this take a big game like this, make it a small box game for two players, and yet it's bigger and more robust and just a rock-solid game. I cannot recommend this one highly enough. Michelle and I loved it from the get-go. We are big fans of Splendor at two players. Always enjoyed it. I, I mean, we like it at three and four, but for a two-player game, you can knock it down in like 50 minutes. The original, it was fun. But this one takes everything we love about the original Splendor. It's still the same basic gameplay, very basic engine building, but it adds so much and just a few different um, elements. So the main one is taking the uh, gems that you're going to use to purchase other gems. Rather than just taking, like in the original, taking a couple of gems that you want, this time you have a board and you have to take, um, you know, three adjacent. Um, and, and then if you take same colors, you're going to give your opponent something. That spatial element puzzle to it as just enough that I right there, there alone was a brilliant touch. But 
Bruno, good old Bruno, takes it even further by adding a few more elements to the gameplay, such as different win conditions. So in the original, it was 15 prestige points. Now you can win with 20 prestige points, or you can with, uh, win with 10 crowns. Uh, those are crowns on the different cards. Some, cr- some cards don't have them, but some do. If you get 10 of those, game over. And also, if you have uh, 10, um, uh, uh, 10 prestige points in the same color, so if I had you know 20 prestige points all over my tableau, I win. Or if I had 10 points in, say, blue, I win as well. So there's three ways you can win. I've won two out of the three ways so far. I would love to win the third way. Um, but that's what keeps me coming back to this game. Michelle and I, we played it nearly a dozen times as well since we've got it. Uh, we did the run-through here on channel, which we loved. But, oh, man, this is so, so good. It is one of my favorite games of the year by far. And, you know, I cannot recommend it highly enough. So, there you go, friends. Those are the four games I played this month. Thanks again for watching, and take care. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Oh boy. Okay. Thank you, Ruel. Thank you, Kimberly. Thank you, Shay, for breaking down. That's three games of the month already, and those are three excellence. We're about to get to what Jen and I played. I got 17 games to talk about, if I recall correctly. But before we get to that, we do have some more contributors to the channel, folks. And this month, Amy and Maggie of Thinker Themer covered three games uh, to make up for, well, their absence in September. They came back with a vengeance. Unfortunately, they're in a land down under, so it's kind of harder to coordinate getting a video from them to summarize it. Maybe in the future. Let me know if you really want to hear uh, the games they covered from them uh, directly. But in the meantime, I'll fill in and tell you about their three games, starting with Outrun the Bear, which is a cute little competitive card game where, well, you don't have to be faster than the bear. You just have to be faster than everybody else around the table because we're all campers running to get back to the station wagon and safety. And uh, yeah, there's some really clever card play in this game. And interesting, there's almost sort of, it, this is not a cooperative game. It is a competitive game. Not everybody's going to make it out. But um, there are moments where players can kind of collude a little bit to get forward as best they can, uh, you can check out Amy and Maggie's run-through. Uh, it's kind of just a silly fun, um, yet there was some surprising depth to the card play in Outrun the Bear. And now what's interesting is, this is kind of an odd coincidence. That in the month they covered Outrun the Bear, they also covered Survival of the Fattest, which is another game where you could be harassed by a bear. Although in this case, the bear would be one of your opponents. In this game, each player is a woodland critter trying to save up food for the long, long winter ahead. And um, whether you are the squirrel or the bear or whatever, or the deer, you have different special player powers in this deck building game with... This has got to be one of the prettiest games that was covered on the channel this much. The art is just gobsmackingly gorgeous in a cute, colorful, vibrant, cartoony way. The card play, the deck building is smart. Lots of interesting, cool card powers. Uh, This game can have a little bit of uh, back and forth traps and whatnot that you have to deal with. But a very, very neat game. And once again, you can check out Amy and Maggie's run-through preview to get a better idea of Survival of the Fattest. That's... Where else? What other channel, folks? Do you get two? 
two Harassed by Bears games in one month. Thank you, Amy and Maggie, uh, for that. But, of course, the biggest thing they covered, uh, and maybe the biggest run-through they have done to date for the channel, was my father's work. Now, this is an epic worker placement game in terms of length and ambition because it plays over three generations of a family of mad scientists. It starts out with the father starting out where they're going to make time travel or a spaceship or whatever um, crazy invention they're trying to do. And in that first uh, generation's lifetime, the job will not get done. And so midway through the game, um, you will die and your uh, your children will take over for you. The second generation will continue where the first left off. And then ultimately a third generation will continue, which necessitates resetting the board, which is constantly evolving and updating. Because this game takes place over decades, the nearby town changes and evolves throughout the game, and that's the core of the worker placement of this game. Plus there's a lot of uh, card hand management stuff and whatnot too. And... Uh, the it's hard. It's a worker placement card game, but it's also driven by an incredibly elaborate uh, narrative, uh, where you are playing through you know not just only three generations of gameplay, but three generations of story. As all kinds of events happen, the choices you make in one generation will uh, you know be passed on to the next because the app remembers what has happened and will create new different um, ways that the world evolves. And it has a ton a metric boatload of storytelling, a really long narrative chapters to read out loud. Um, and actually, it's interesting, Amy and Maggie, I think their one complaint was that maybe it was a little bit verbose, although you can kind of speed read the uh, sections if you just want to focus on the gameplay. Anyway, folks, like I said, this is a big game, an ambitious game, and it's probably the biggest game that Amy and Maggie have um, set out to cover on the channel to date, and they did a fantastic job covering my father's work. But uh, that that was it for the contributors. And next up, let's uh, spend a bit of time talking about what Jen and I played. Let's talk about Space Hulk Death Angel with the three mini blister pack expansions. Which is an interesting thing. Uh, uh, folks, uh, maybe not everybody knows, uh, if you're a member of the show or you back me on Patreon, uh, every month I do a solo run-through. And this month, I did a solo run-through of Space Hulk with all of the expansions turned on. And the reason I did is because it was a long-standing request on the Rotter Request Geek List. And uh, also, because I'd never gotten a chance to play them. And, and uh, you know, Space Hulk Death Angel is one of my favorite solo games of all time. And so I finally took the chance to play them, and they come in at the bottom of the list. Mostly because, as nice as they are, and they are nice, don't get me wrong, they definitely add a nice flavor to the goings-on of Space Hulk Death Angel, which is basically a cooperative card game that is set in the, was it the Warhammer uh, universe? But it's really, might as well be called James Cameron's Aliens. But anyway, the uh, expansions, one of them adds new uh, space marines you can play with. One of them adds a new type of aliens you can play with, and one of them adds a bunch of new mission cards. And uh, so I turned all of them on and did my best in the uh, the member-only video. You can, and you know, people who are Patreon or, or back me on YouTube can watch that and see how well it turned out. Uh, as always, it was a hard-fought battle. Space Hulk Death Angel is one of the toughest co-ops out there. And I put this at the bottom of the list. One, because as nice as they are, they are not worth hundreds of dollars, which is what people are charging for them on um, you know, on eBay or whatever. 
I mean, if you could get one of these expansions and you're, if you really, really love Space Hulk Death Angel and you could get them for maybe, I don't know, 40 or 50 bucks, you're still way overpaying, but I think that's maybe reasonable considering the extreme rarity. But here's the deal, folks. If you are only going to get one of them, do not get the new, the one that gives new aliens, the Tyranid pack, because I actively disliked that one. Because when those Tyranids came out and they have special powers on the alien cards, it so upset the flow of the game. And they were so much extra bookkeeping you had to do to keep track. Oh, wait, let's not forget. There's a special alien over here, which is buried amongst a stack of other aliens. And I just have the icon and ah, did not like that one at all. I really liked the new Space Marines in the, um, I think it was called the the, the Deathwing Assault Pack or something like that. They were really interesting because they focused a little bit less on combat and more on support, which of course is great for me. And the new missions had some nice variety as well. Um, so, uh, as a whole, I think they're wonderful. I'm very glad I have them. And it's amazing to me that even though Space Hulk Death Angel came in a super tiny little box, you can fit, if you have them all, you can fit all the expansions in the original box. But um, they're just not worth what they are going for. And of course, they'll never get reprinted because uh, Fantasy Flight Game lost the rights to the uh, this universe many, many years ago. So, um, it's for those reasons that the Space Hulk Death Angel expansions come in at the bottom of the list, number 17. Although... To be fair, I really enjoyed my time with them. Except for the Tyranus pack. Oh man, that Tyranus pack. I did not like it at all. I would never play with it again. Okay, now let's move on to a number 16. Another science fiction game. Um, it is... Where are we? There it is. Star Wars! The Clone Wars. And now this is basically Star Wars played with the pandemic gameplay formula. It's not designed by uh, Matt Leacock. Some other designers have come in, but they have done a very, very admirable job, I think, transporting the uh, the flair of the Star Wars Clone Wars universe. So this is less about the movies and more about the Clone Wars TV shows, animated series and all that. All your favorite characters are here. I've never watched the animated uh, series. Uh, so many of your favorite characters are here and the planets and all of that. And it's all driven by the same, hey, on your turn, you've got four action points to spend to move around from planet to planet, fighting droids instead of plague cubes that just keep popping up at the worst place at the worst time. Um, but a big focus on this game is every time you play, you're going to go up against a different Sith Lord. General Grievous, uh, Darth Tyrannus, and although I think those are the two I recognize, and the other ones were from the cartoon, so I didn't recognize them. And they are going to be running around on the board independently, pursuing their own agenda. And depending on which Sith Lord you fight against, you have very different things. Um, we played with, um, you know, Christopher Lee, uh, you know, uh, Count Dooku, and he, his whole thing was, he brought in two helpers, and they were actively chasing us, and trying to hunt us down. They were Jedi hunters. But there's another one that just actually moves out to all the missions and tries to make the missions much more tricky for us to overcome. Because in this game, we're not trying to cure diseases. We are trying to move to the right planet at the right place at the right time to partake in a mission. And I bet you anything, these missions are probably taken from the show as well. Now, what changes from Pandemic, the biggest thing is the way cards work. This is not a game where you have a handful of cards and you get the, you do a set collection or you spend those cards to move around the board. Instead, these cards represent the different clone troopers and um, equipment and armor and vehicles that you are leading as a uh, Jedi general in battle. And you never discard these cards to trigger their effects. Instead, you just tap them to use them. And on your next turn, they untap. And you can tap them on your turn, you can tap them on your team's turn, but unlike regular Pandemic, where you're 
you're constantly, I'm trying to manage my hand. I've got too many. I've got to spend all these cards and, and, your, and your cards are constantly coming and going. Here, you get a big group of uh, clone followers. You carry them around for a while. And you need the right types of clones to have a better shot at rolling the dice um, and completing different missions as you move around the galaxy. And of course, if somebody else is at the same mission you're at, they can tap their clone troopers to help you when you're doing a die roll with a 12-sided die to see if you get enough successes and if you take damage and all of that. So, the whole thing works very well. And I think the design... Well, I mean, I'm not crazy about bringing dice into Pandemic. Pandemic doesn't need it. Um, I would have liked to have gone without that personally. But you know what? Um, considering the target audience, this is much more mass market because it's Star Wars. I, I think it's the appropriate thing for them to do. And in fact, I mean, Jan and I did definitely enjoy our game. Our only problems I really had with it, one, it's maybe a little bit too easy. We played um, our first game, and I checked afterwards. We didn't really make any significant errors. And we crushed it. The game could not... I mean, and we, and we're experienced Pandemic players. So we know how to make the right choices and the wrong choices and when to compromise and when to sacrifice and, and, um, you know, and when to prioritize things. So, you know, I mean, you know, we're not new... Uh, we're not Padawans here, but we found it was a little bit too easy. And, I, and the thing that bothers me, the game comes with... It says in the rules, oh, is maximum difficulty not hard enough? Here's a way to make it harder and harder and harder. I appreciate that, except this is the cardinal sin of this game, really, for me. To make the harder you want this game to be, the longer it has to be. Because you just increase the difficulty of the game by making a bigger and bigger stack of missions you have to do. And so, if I want the game to be twice as hard, it's literally going to take twice as long to win. And I am not a fan of that at all. There are dozens of ways that developers could have increased the overall difficulty of the game without having to increase the length of the game. And since for us, we would have to increase it really high to have a challenge, because we're just, again, I mean, we played... Hundreds. Oh, we've played probably over a hundred games of Pandemic by now. Maybe even over two hundred games with all the, the you know the variations and the uh, you know the what we call them, the legacy games and all that. So I wish they would have had a different way to increase the difficulty. But now, if you're a new player, or hey, if you're just a Star Wars fan, um, or more to the point, if you're a board game geek and you have Star Wars fans in your life that you would like to pull them in, this game is fantastic for that. It really captures the feel of Star Wars. It's a little, actually has a little bit more rules overhead than straight Pandemic, but it's still pretty approachable. And uh, I think what it sets out to do, it does nicely. I would have rated it significantly higher if it weren't for the, oh, make the game harder by making it longer, which was, for me, kind of a big boo-boo in an otherwise excellent, um, you know, uh, uh, repurposing of my favorite game of all time, Pandemic, that is Star Wars, The Clone Wars. Alrighty, then let's move on to the next one. We have got Pampero. Right? Where is it? There it is. Pampero. Okay. Now, this was a, uh, a paid Kickstarter preview. And um, Jen and I were both very, very impressed by this one. Uh, it's... Uh, it's a game from a relatively new designer who uh, has really be, uh, you know, gotten his bona fides by being, if I recall correctly, a very active playtester, an official playtester for the designs of Vito Lasarda, who, of course, is one of the greatest uh, board game designers of all time. I'm a huge fan of Vito's work. And um, uh, what's his name? Oh, gosh. Julian. Julian Pambo? Jambo? Julian, uh, I think, 
has come up with a game that feels like if you had told me this had been designed by Vita Lasarda, I could believe it. Because it is big, it is heavy, it is crunchy, and it is brilliantly designed. At its heart, like a good Vita Lasarda design, it has a very simple mechanism of I've got cards that uh, help me um, build up green infrastructure, um, you know, uh, wind farms in Uruguay. By the way, folks, did you know Uruguay ha- gets 95% of its electricity as a country is generated from wind? Isn't that amazing? This game tells the story of how that came about through government subsidies. Uh, because we are uh, independent um, you know, uh, energy conglomerates trying to grab all the subsidies we can and turn Uruguay green in the biggest, best way possible. And it's a brilliant design. You can watch my run-through to see more. There's a lot of interplay between players because people players can use each other's, um, oh, what do you call it, uh, equipment. Um, you know, If they're not in the right place, if you're not in the right place, but I am, you can just go ahead and pay me and use my stuff. And we'll both benefit benefit from it. Uh, it also has a really deep mini game that is all about building up your power grid as you um, invest in more and more infrastructure and unlock all kinds of bonuses. The game is incredibly impressive. I think people are really going to fall very hard in love with this game. The only reason it comes in so high for me and Jen at, what was it, number 15, Pampero, is the fact that it is a bit too heavy for us. Uh, you know, Jen and I found long ago, it was Vita Lasarda. It was Vita Lasarda's Lisboa that finally broke me and said, Vita, I love your games, but they're just going to be too heavy for me and Jen anymore. And then he doubled down on that with On Mars. So I'm still kind of in the uh, Vita Lasarda gallerist Vinos, um, you know, high end of game complexity, but not as heavy as it can get. Pampero says, hold my beer, hold my wind farm, and they push a very beautifully produced game with um, wonderful interactive gameplay between players, positive interaction instead of negative interaction. A lot to recommend here if you're looking for a very, very heavy business simulation. Number 15 on the list, Pampero. Okay, then let's go on to number 14 on the list, which I suspect is probably going to be my most controversial pick of this episode. Number 14 is Great Western Trail Argentina. And people are saying, what? Great Western Trail is arguably um, uh, designer Alexander Fister's greatest design of all time. And you know what? If you feel that way, I wouldn't blame you. It is brilliant. It is him doing um, one of his signature moves, gigantic super rondelles with branching paths and all of that, as we try to drive our doggies, well, in the original Great Western Trail, across the American West to get them to, what was it, Salt Lake City, St. Louis? I don't remember where. Um, Now, we are driving them through the pampas of uh, South America, of Argentina, trying to get them on ships to ship them overseas. And the core... Uh, what do you call it? Great Western Trail gameplay is here. It hasn't changed, but like a whole expansion's worth of content has been layered in. And um, honestly, I suspect, given enough time, in a couple of years, most people will come to prefer Great Western Trail Argentina over Great Western Trail um, because it adds more complexity to the game with this concept of ships and feed. Not only do we have to just move those doggies along, we gotta feed them too. Um, and, uh, you know, foreign ports of call that we're trying to be the first to get our contracts in. There's a bunch of extra stuff added to the core gameplay. And for me and Jen, I was like, I don't know if we needed all this extra depth and complexity. There was already enough in the base game. But the interesting thing is, at the same time, the game is much more wide open. Um, If something you want to do seems to be blocked, chances are you can do something almost as good elsewhere. The original Great Western Trail was a bit more harsh and unforgiving. And if, uh, if you weren't careful about how you planned 
land things, you're like, oh my gosh, I wasted this entire cattle run. Here, the, um, the game, like I said, just gives you a lot more ways. Uh, get out of jail free cards. I, in my run-through, I likened it to the difference between Brass Birmingham and Brass Lancashire. Lancashire, the original Brass, is a bit simpler, less complex, and also much more brutal to play through. Because you, because you you really have to play extra smart to avoid the traps you can fall into. And then Brass Birmingham introduced more complexity, but that complexity made the game a little bit more forgiving. Same thing has happened here with Great Western Trail Argentina. Now, all these changes didn't do anything to address my number one problem with Great Western Trail, which is it's also can be, in a two-player game, a pretty cutthroat game because, oh, I know you need to travel this way. I'm going to go out of my way to build buildings that are in your way to bleed you dry. In a higher player count game, um, I mostly build the buildings where I need them to go. In a two-player game, though, I build them where you don't want them to go. And Jen and I found we were tripping over each other, just like back when we played Great Western Trail. Uh, it's why I still prefer Maracaibo, uh, another Alexander Fisher game that is all about a gigantic rondelle. But, um, folks, it, it, it does... It does Great Western Trail proud. I still thought it was very amazing. All the new elements thrown into the game were really... Beautifully done, nicely thematic, and added that extra crunch if you're a hardcore Great Western Trail fan and that's what you're looking for. And you are, if you've ever been playing Great Western Trail and you got, oh, I'm so frustrated, ah! You might want to try Argentina instead. Uh, you will find uh, more ways to skin that cow uh, when you go south of the border in number 14 of the month, Great Western Trail, Argentina! And now I will never have to say that again. Okay. Um, although I very much enjoy it. All right, let's move on then to number 13 on the list, Gathering Gloom, which was a game that was uh, going for crowdfunding. I think its campaign is almost over, and very sadly, I don't think it's going to fund, and it breaks my heart, because this is a very, very sharp, cooperative game that you would be forgiven if you were looking and say, hey, is this like um, The Addams Family, the board game, or The Munsters, the board game? It's about a creaky, a creepy um, family of, of spooky but kind of silly characters um, you know, running afoul of the local townsfolk as they just try to get by. Actually, uh, maybe not as many people recognize, but if you're familiar with the old American um, gothic soap opera, Dark Shadows, this is basically Dark Shadows, the board game. And I'm not talking about the, um, the Tim Burton... Uh, uh, you know, film remake um, because this game gets pretty uh, macabre. Uh, you know, in this game, hey, we're doing um, cooperative worker placement stuff in really brilliant ways. Multi-use worker placement spots, multi-use cards that we can use to um, you know sacrifice some cards to play other cards to interact with the townsfolk. And oh, the townsfolk is the beating heart of this game because they start out they're all suspicious of us, but hey. If there's a really good townsfolk who could help us with our goals, how about we um, seduce them or hypnotize them? Or if you're the werewolf, bite them and turn them into a werewolf so they'll join our party and help us. But over time, these townsfolk start getting more items. It's kind of like you're being hunted by real human players who level themselves up. And you're like, oh, well, you know, I didn't really mind the FBI agent at first, but now the FBI agent has a gun. We got to solve this problem because if they start um, um, stalking us, that's really going to slow down our progress. But when I say macabre, I'm not kidding, folks. If you murder somebody, or more to the point, if you're being stalked by the FBI agent with a gun and you move over to my area and I have one of my followers murder your follower, well, that body goes to the morgue. And if too much evidence against us builds up in the morgue, that can really slow us down. But we can transfer the bodies from the morgue to the mortuary 
which we own. And um, the game doesn't go into detail what happens to the bodies in the mortuary. Basically, we can suck out their souls um, and use them to fuel other things. So the game, it's very silly. It has a really, um, again, I guess Tim Burton-esque, you know, uh, Sweeney Todd-esque sense of humor to it. Um, And uh, really, really smart multi-use card, worker placement, a cooperative gameplay that is wonderful. And, oh, also, did I mention it's a deck builder? But it is the highest velocity, uh, most freedom-given deck builder in the universe. The way they completely redesign how deck building works and, uh, you know, basically throw out all the precepts that uh, Donald X. Vaccarino gave us with Dominion and come up with a completely new way to do it that I found so exciting. There's a lot to recommend here. I hope it funds somehow. I hope uh, we have not heard the last of Gathering Gloom. The only reason it comes in solo for me is really my wife. It was too dark for her. Too macabre, too dark. And um, But for me, I, it would be in my top 10. But you know, all these rankings are a com- combination of my feelings and my wife's feelings. So uh, anyway, that was number 13 of the month. Gathering Gloom. All right, then, let's move on to number 12 of the month. I have no idea how to pronounce this. Um, Oneironauts. O-N-E-I-R-O-N-A-U-T-S. I'm going to say Oneironauts. Maybe. Once again, publishers, please put pronunciation guides um, for your weird game concepts. Here's what this game is, though. Uh, This game rated super high for Jen. This was like, I think, her number two or her number three game of the month. It's my number 12 game of the month. Um, But uh, I will never get rid of this game. This game effectively, as far as Jen and I can concerned, replaces Dixit. Because it is effectively cooperative Dixit. And it's cooperative Dixit that works well with two players. Now, it doesn't work great with two players. This is a game where you definitely, like Dixit, the more players around the table, the better. As we all have a handful of beautiful, wonderful cards full of just dreamy, surreal art. And every turn, um, there's going to be a word that is chosen randomly from a deck of cards, right? And um, everybody has to pick a, uh, a card from their deck play it because if it matches, um, like War is the one that's on screen right now. So I try to find my best War card. Everybody tries to find their best War card. We all add them to this deck face down, and then we draw and throw in one extra random one. And then we put them all on display, and everybody has to guess, right, of those cards, which was the one that was chosen by a human, and which was the one that was chosen randomly? And that sounds so simple, and it is... It's so pure and clean and elegant, and Jen and I both instantly fell in love with it. Of course, the card art is fantastic, too. And now, as a two-player game, the reason it doesn't rate higher for me is because often, in a lot of rounds, it's going to be really obvious that, oh, one of these things doesn't fit. These two are both really uh, perfect war cards, but this other one isn't. And so often we can pick it. But that doesn't change the fact that even as a two-player game, like uh, in this little bit that's being um, run on screen right now. By the way, this was another member-only video um, if you back on YouTube or Patreon that you got to see Jenny play a game of this and also a game of uh, Star Wars Clone Wars. We played all the way through. Um, so it's, it's still a bit more challenging, but I think it's a little bit more random. Uh, it's, it's subject to a bit more random swinginess at a lower player count. Whereas at a higher player count, you've got more people throwing stuff in, which means you've got more people guessing correctly, which means you're scoring more points. And I think it's just going to be more fun when people say, wait a minute, why did you throw that one in? That one's obviously terrible. And they'll say, well, it's the right color or, or whatever it might be. 
It's great. It engenders all those same wonderful feelings that Dixit did, but is a cooperative game that works with two. It's amazing. Um, this one's going in our RV. This is a game that we are always going to want to have on hand in case we ever run into people who say, well, show us one of your board games. This is such a great icebreaker, and it does everything we want out of Dixit in a fraction of the time, in a fraction of the complexity, no weird scoring stuff, and you work with people. I'm super impressed by it. My only real complaint, because I'm not even bothered by the randomness. I still have too much fun playing it with just Jen. My only complaint is, really, the title. Uh, number 12, I'm going to guess or, or, or Iron Knots, or an Iron Knots. Anyway, though, let's move on now to number 11 on the list. A Fit to Print. And now this is a really interesting one. Um, this is a game that is uh, going to be uh, going live on crowdfunding in November. I got an early version of it. I did a preview for it. You'll be able to see this preview soon. And the interesting thing is, the game comes with several different modes. This is in a an acute, anthropomorphized woodland animal world where they're running newspapers and we're trying to design the best front page we can, um, drafting tiles that represent articles, news articles, ads, and pictures. And there's all kinds of rules for the tile laying that you have to adhere to while you're trying to get the right things in the right place to score lots of points. Just a nice standard solid um, tile laying game. Everybody's working on getting the right bits for their own page because they have their own special powers. They have uh, you know all kinds of stuff. The tiling works great. The drafting works great. And here's what's interesting. My run-through shows the turn-based version of the game, which we is what Jen and I played. You can also play the game real-time, at which point it really borrows a lot from uh, Czech Games Edition's classic Galaxy Trucker. But I think it really throws in some new interesting twists to the Galaxy Trucker format as well. Because in this game, when you're playing real-time, you don't just grab the tiles and put them you know, directly onto your ship. You put them onto your news desk, and you have to make a considered choice to say, I'm done collecting tiles, now I transfer them to the board. I have not played it. Uh, I played it solo as a real-time game. Thought it was great. Um, but here's the important thing. After I finished filming, I put it in the mail, International Express, to Down Under, because Amy and Maggie, by now, should have the copy, and they're going to be filming the real-time gameplay. And I cannot wait to see their run-through. And when this goes live, crowdfunding, you'll see me doing the uh, turn-based and Amy and Maggie doing the real-time. The game also comes with like a puzzle mode. It comes with a family-friendly mode. It's really great. It's from the same design team that have brought us Cascadia and um, you know, I mean, was it, um, oh, uh, Truffle Shuffle? And I was really impressed by it. I really enjoyed it quite a bit. I really did want to play the real time, though, because if you play the turn base, a lot of the cool, like the special player powers and the uh, the daily events that will, you know, break, all those are left out of the uh, turn base. So I think I would rate it even higher as a real time game, which is why I cannot wait to see Amy and Maggie giving a run through, and you'll see me doing it too in a totally different way of number 11 on the list, fit to print. Okay, then let's go on to a number 10 on the list, Race to the Raft. Okay. This is the sequel to Isle of Cats, which is one of the greatest polyominal tile layer games of all time. Um, it was a competitive game where you were trying to rescue cats from an island where pirates were coming and they were going to do, they were going to burn the island down. Well, people always ask, what happened to the cats we didn't save in Isle of Cats? Well, those cats will save themselves. And that's the story that Race to the Raft um, tells. Because the cats that were left behind, there's a raft. And they've got to navigate a uh, complex maze while the place is burning down and fire is nipping its 
at their heels. And we're working cooperatively in this, um, what, uh, what do you call it, like a card layering game, where uh, on my turn, I've got these different cards that I rotate and lay down to extend the green path for the green cat, or the red path for the red cat. Also, those cats, I can either play those cards to extend the paths, or I can discard the cards to get the cats to actually move. And we win if we get them all on the raft before the whole place burns down. And, oh my gosh, the game comes with so many cool features. Uh, I, I don't remember, there. it comes with dozens and dozens of different hand-created um, missions for you to play through. Uh, Jen and I actually played through a few and really enjoyed the puzzly nature of it. Uh, it also has a fun take on imperfect communication, you know, Hanabi-style trying to give clues to each other because you can't say exactly what's in your hand, but you can talk general strategy. It's got a very cool event deck that you're constantly dealing with. And then it also has cool things like sometimes, oh, there's a leader of the cats and they got to get on the boat first. But they're the one that's farthest away. And so you've got these extra considerations. You can watch my preview I did of it to see just how much fun it is. Um, you know, Isle of Cats is fantastic, but if you ever want to say, I want to work with people to help the cats instead of try to beat people at helping the cats, well, you might want to check out Race for the Raft. Okay, then let's go on to number nine on the list, and we've got series. I think I just literally put this video up today, or yesterday from maybe your perspective, depending on when you're seeing this, or three years ago if you're seeing this video three years from now. That doesn't matter. Time is immaterial. YouTube is eternal. Um, but what is this game? This is... Well, first of all, I'm so excited. It is from Artipia Games, one of my longtime favorite board game publishers. It looked for a while like they were down and out. We hadn't heard anything about them for the majority of the uh, pandemic, but they're back. They're fundraising this very, very cool... Um, what do you call it? Worker placement uh, game all about mining the dwarf planet or asteroid, depending on how you look at it, series. And uh, it's got a lot of really cool stuff to recommend it. Uh, it's got strong engine building elements, and the worker placement at its heart, it has basically two simultaneous worker placement games going at the same time. You've got one that's more standard. I've got my leader disc that I can send out to the board, and hey, if I grab a space before you, then, well, too bad. You'll have to try and get that next round. Um, but we are also building our own personal private worker placement boards by building more buildings. It gives us more influence with the uh, Martian Council, and uh, you know, triggers all kinds of nice combo-y elements there. But as we build more buildings to activate, we activate those with workers from a common pool. Which means, at the same time that we are racing to get our normal workers out on the board to grab all the best spots, we are racing to draft all the um, specialist workers, the engineers, the scientists, from the common pool to get into our own buildings. Because if I've got this amazing leveled up, because you can build buildings and then level them up, red building, and you grab the last red worker, I'm going to be very sad. But that's a choice I might have made, because I need to get the last construction space on the main board before you took that. So, it's definitely uh, multiple multiple level worker placement. It's got a great presentation. Uh, it's got a very, very fun um, board element that represents the asteroid belt, uh, where there's three layers of spinning asteroids. So you're constantly having to make long-term plans for, okay, that asteroid is too expensive, but if I wait till next round, it's going to move into position. But will I be first player next round? Will I be able to get to it before somebody else does? So it's got that going as well. It's really sharp. You can check out my uh, preview to see more. Jen and I both really liked it quite a bit. Uh, number nine, series. Okay, we're not done yet, folks. There was a lot of good stuff in October, including number eight, Delta. This was another crowdfunding game that I did a uh, sponsored preview for. And um, what's going on in Delta? This is, what would you call it? 
I guess you'd call it a deck builder, really at its heart more than anything else. We got a deck of cards that represents um, all my followers in this steampunk Victorian era world where we are trying to explore the Delta and study, not capture, study these beautiful mechanical creatures. But um, on your turn, you're going to take a card from your hand and you're either going to play it to the laboratory, to the library, or the Delta. And every round, you're going to play one card to each of these three locations. So it's really a deck builder slash worker placement game. Because you're building your deck of cards, but then you use those cards as workers. And when you place those workers down, there's several things that happens for you. First of all, you get to interact with whatever area you went to. And depending on the worker you spent, you may get more or less good interactions with that. Because certain workers work well in some places better than others. But there is also an initiative system. Because above each of these three locations, there are cards that at the end of the round, we are going to draft. And that's how that's the main way we build our deck. We get new cards entered into our system by getting these uh, cards. And whoever has the highest initiative in each of these areas gets first dibs on those cards. So if there's a new person you really, really want to recruit, you might send a really high initiative character to the laboratory so you can up your chances of being first in the draft to get it. Even if that character can't do anything in the laboratory at all. Um, those are the really tough choices you have to make as you're doing this deck builder slash worker placement game. And then on top of it, there's another thing that really elevates this game even more. Um, at the end of the round, the, the cards you've played, they go into uh, individual discard buckets, and you get to claim one of those buckets back. This is very much the Alexander Pfister... Uh, slow card trickle system introduced in Mombasa, brought brought back now in Sky Mines, but we also saw it in Blackout Hong Kong. I've always loved this, but it's always been in these heavier, crunchier Alexander Fister games. Now that same idea is in a lighter, faster, gate, uh, not quite gateway, a gateway plus style deck building game. And so we can really focus on that element more so than in the previous games. I love everything about this game. I love the presentation. I think uh, Jen and I both really enjoyed the gameplay of number eight, Delta. Okay, then let's go on to number seven. And now this one's kind of a weird one. Number seven, I would like to think of it almost as the Fantasy Realms Cinematic Universe. Because I'm going to be talking now about Fantasy Realms, the deluxe edition, and Marvel Remix, which is basically Fantasy Realm uh, converted into um, you know Marvel superheroes, and Star Trek Missions, which is the Fantasy Realm system transferred over into Star Trek The Next Generation. And I love, first of all, all three of these. I could easily give all three a seven on this list, uh, but I am going to rank them. And I'm, I'm sad to say, folks, that the OG Fantasy Realms comes in at the bottom. It's my least favorite of the three, even when you add, uh, in the Deluxe Edition, the new, oh, I forget what it's called, the Dark Treasures expansion, something like that. What is it? You don't know? Uh, Fantasy Realms, is a, you have a hand of cards. Every turn, you are going to draw a new card, either blind from a deck or from a face-up uh, collection of discard cards. And then you're going to discard a card. And we're going to keep doing that until the discard pile of cards gets big enough. And then the game stops. Everybody tallies up all the points of all the cards in their hands. Whoever has the most points wins. It's a pretty 
The original game is a pretty abstract. I mean, there are thematic touches. You know, the princess wants to ride on the unicorn. The king and queen both want to be in your hand. If you've got a general, that means you want lots of army cards in your hand. And so every time somebody's discarding something, they don't know whether they're giving you something that's perfect for you. So there's a lot. Of, it's a simple, fast-playing game with a surprising amount of tension. Um, and it's great. It's fantastic. Uh, the, definitely the deluxe edition, which also comes, I think, with, if I recall correctly, cool custom sleeves, is all very, very nice. But as much as we enjoyed the core game, I'm going to talk about number six on the list, Marvel Remix. I like it even better. It's still the same core gameplay. Everything I just described about you have a handful of cards, you're going to draw a new card, and then discard a card. But there's a few things that change. One is you've got two decks to draw from because there's two types of cards. There's all your heroic cards, which is where you score all your points, and then there are villain cards. And at the end of the game, you have to have at least one villain in your hand because that's who all the heroes you're trying to recruit are fighting. And um, although you could have more, and so the villain is a source of points or a source of losing points if you don't get the right heroes, or a source of points if you do get the right heroes to fight them. Like Magneto, you should probably fight them with some X-Men as an example. So if you're keeping Magneto in your hand, you're looking for those X-Men to come out in the public display so you can grab them. Um, and maybe uh, you know, you know, X-Manor and stuff like that too. But I mean, you know, the whole of the Marvel universe, comic book universe, is here, and I love it. And so there's a little bit of extra complexity with the two different decks and the extra interaction, which is very nice. But what really brings a remix over Fantasy Realms for me is at the end of a game of Fantasy Realms, I felt like, oh, I got a bunch of points. And... And I've got just some disparate elements. But at the end of Remix, I feel like I wrote a comic book. Hey, um, Spider-Man teamed up with Luke Cage to take on the leader. And they had a chase scene through the uh, the streets of Manhattan. And it ended up in an old abandoned warehouse. And these are all the cards I've got in my hand. But it feels much more thematic. And I mean, and now maybe this is because... Make mine Marvel. I've been a Marvel Comics fanboy since I was a little boy back in the 70s. Uh, and, you know, going down to the local convenience store and buying uh, Marvel Comics off the spiral racks. I'm sure those things don't exist anymore. So, I mean, this really spoke to my, you know, inner nostalgia and child. But even still... I think the game is better because it tells a stronger story, while still having the same wonderful gameplay of its predecessor, Fantasy Realms. But, folks, of the three, I'm going to have to um, give it to number five is, what do you call it? Star Trek Missions. That is the best of them. Because Star Trek Missions has that same thing that I just talked about in Marvel. A much stronger narrative element to the game. Because now, we are trying to grab cards that represent the crew of the Star Trek Next Generation uh, crew, specifically. And so many elements from the TV show. And in this game, instead of recreating a comic book, we're recreating specific episodes of the show. Oh, is this going to be a holodeck episode? Well, I got Professor Moriarty. I want to try and find that holodeck. Or, oh, there's intrigue with the Romulans or the Klingons. So again, just like Marvel, it has that same wonderful storytelling. And this one also has two decks. You've got your main deck, and then you've got an away mission deck. And those away mission cards are the primary source of a lot of points. Because if you've got the right away mission, and you've got the right crew um, or equipment to deal with those missions, then you're really going to pay a big. And there is... The interplay between cards, uh, you know, each individual card has more unique traits that can dovetail and combo with more stuff. I mean, this game is the most complex in terms of the 
the labyrinth of spaghetti between all these cards in your hand. Like, oh, I don't want to sacrifice this because it helps with this, but it doesn't help with that. And that one out there does, and I should grab that one and replace it, but oh, what am I going to do? Uh, so it has all the wonderful thematic stuff of Marvel. It is a more heavy and complex game than, um, whatchamacallit, uh, Fantasy Realms as well. And, uh, yeah, it, it, it's absolutely fantastic. And so it comes in uh, in this little mini run-through as my number one of the Fantasy Realms Cinematic Universe. But you know what, folks? While we're here... Let's uh, throw some love to my real number one, uh, Rising Tide. Uh, this is not on the list. I have not played it this month. I covered this in a roundup many, many moons ago. This was from a different publisher, uh, designer Jamie Stegmeier of Stonemeyer Games. Openly admitted, he's the biggest Fantasy Realms fan in the universe. Borrowed a lot of ideas from Fantasy Realms. Put them in the Red Rising universe, which is uh, a very popular series of science fiction novels that I've not read. But really elevated the gameplay to a very, very high level. There's a lot more going on um, with multiple discard piles we're potentially drawing stuff from and putting stuff to. And multiple different um, progress tracks we're making rather than just most points in your hand at the end of the game. So it has that same core gameplay that I love so much in Fantasy Realms and all its spin-offs, but still, I'm going to have to give the real hat trick, uh, is that right? Whatever, to Red Rising. Okay, but they're all fantastic, folks. Oh my gosh. Uh, I love them all so much. And really, they're all close enough that they could all get like, you know, the same rating, but I'm still doing a countdown, and let's continue. With number four on the list, Beer and Bread, um, which, unfortunately, I got too late uh, in the mail to put on the voting list to see if my backers would have chosen for me to cover it. And I'm kind of sad because Jen and I went ahead and played it anyway when we were recently on a weekend-long road trip in our RV. Perfectly sized little two-player crunchy Euro card drafting game from Scott Alms. And oh my gosh, it is wonderful. I expect the voters will have me filming this in December if all goes to plan. So you'll see a run-through from it for me eventually. But right now, just let me say, uh, the gameplay takes place over six years, six rounds. And in the odd years, we're doing a Seven Wonders style draft where I've got these cards. I'm going to pick one to play it into my little village, which is trying to brew beer and bake bread. And then the rest of the cards go over to my opponent and they go back and forth with me. So that, you know, that works plays very straightforward, except for the fact that every one of these cards is triple use. You can use them to combo with previous cards that you've played to harvest the uh, the barley and the hops and the water you need to, uh, you know, the, the wheat and all that to uh, make the beer and the bread, or you can play them by tucking them under your side of the board to upgrade your production facilities, or you can treat them as the actual recipes you need to fulfill to actually score points. And in this game, you're trying to make, uh, and, uh, you, you have to keep your beer and your bread in balance because in a very Canizia style twist, um, at the end of the game, you tally up the points for all the beer and all the bread you made. The lower of the two is your final score. So you, um, you've got to bear all that in mind as well. And um, the interesting thing is, I said on the odd turns, we're doing a traditional Sushi Go style back and forth draft. Any cards that were played in in one of those odd rounds to harvest resources in the even rounds, in rounds two, four, and six. We grab all of those cards, and those then become the cards we play in the next round. And so, not only am I using them for harvesting in the, uh, in the odd rounds and trying to combo them with other harvest cards, but it's also a way I can set these cards aside so I can play them later in the game. It's freaking brilliant. And Jen and I were both hugely impressed. Oh, one other thing I really love about this game, uh, it's a game where you have very, very tight, limited, restricted 
limited storage as well. Um, so you got to be really careful when you're harvesting stuff because the more you harvest, the more you combo and you get really big paydays. Anything you can't store when you harvest doesn't go back to supply. It goes to your opponent because we're friendly villages and this is a waste not want not um, province we find ourselves in. And I love that. I love everything about this game. Simple little fast playing um, uh, card drafting game with engine building and all the rest of it. Absolutely brilliant. Number four of the month, beer and bread. But we're still not done, folks. Let's talk about number three, King of Monster Island. And now here's the deal, folks. If you had told me a couple of months ago when I was contacted by Publisher Yellow and said, hey, we're doing a cooperative version of King of Tokyo. I'm sorry, did I say King of Tokyo? It's King of Monster Island. King of Monster Island is my number three. This is a cooperative sequel to King of Tokyo, which is one of my least favorite games I've ever played. Not that it's bad, it's just so not for me. It's just, uh, Real King of Tokyo or King of New York is a Yahtzee-style slugfest where we're each controlling big, gigantic kaiju monsters trying to pummel each other over the head. So when they said, oh, we're turning it into cooperative wherever all the kaiju monsters work together to beat a super monster on a volcanic island, uh, well, I, I said, okay, I'll give that a try. Because I could see the gameplay was good from designer Richard Garfield, Mr. Magic the Gathering. It just wasn't for me because it was so punchy-punchy and just, ugh. But co-op, maybe that'll work great. Who knows? It, the next time I ever do a top 10 most surprising games, folks... This has got to go high on my list because I was blown away by this. Um, there's so much more than meets the eye in this game. At first, it seems so simple. Hey, the, uh, every turn, the big bad boss rolls some dice by dropping them in the volcano and they spread all over the island and that determines kind of where the big bad monster that we're trying to beat, uh, the king of Monster Island, is going to move and what they're going to do special powers-wise. And then we take our turn doing the same traditional... King of Tokyo, Yahtzee, roll, re-roll, re-roll, using the exact same dice from King of Tokyo, and then we use those dice to chase the big bad monster around to help each other, heal each other, all kinds of stuff, to interact with the world, all kinds of things, and it's freaking brilliant. It's kind of like a later, a lighter, almost more gateway version of one of the best co-op games to come out in years, The Loop. It has a lot in common with The Loop in the way that we are, we are traveling either clockwise or counterclockwise around a central board, chasing a big bad, trying to stop them, but where the loop was a a very uh, a really deep game with a lot of uh, tough crunchy decisions based on card drafting, this is a more fun, frantic, lightweight Yahtzee style uh, dice chucker, and we both really enjoyed it a lot. Especially because if you play at the higher difficulty levels, which by the way don't get longer, um, it's just it gets harder uh, if you play at higher difficulty level, not longer. Uh, Lesson to the developers of Star Wars Clone Wars. Uh, if you play at the higher difficulty levels, it's really challenging, and you have to make tough, smart, long-term decisions. That basically the depth and complex or the depth of the game gets greater the higher the difficulty level. So you could play this uh, at the low difficulty levels and just have kind of a fun just chucking. It's like a next step. If, if you have people in your life who loved uh, King of Tokyo and you're like, well, hey, how about we try this? They'll probably love this too. And you can introduce them to a slightly heavier game where you work with people instead of trying to beat them over the head and you know celebrate uh, you know combined victory. I'm really impressed by this. Uh, the presentation is great. The design is stellar, which shouldn't be surprising. I mean, Richard Garfield is one of the most consequential and influential designers of uh, analog games in human history at this point, I would have to say. And King of Monster Island lives up to that pedigree. Well, not quite. It's that's, that's a bit much. That's a bit hyperbole. I'll just say we really, really liked it a lot. Number three, King of Monster Island. Okay. 
then let's go on to number two, Unconscious Minds. Oh my gosh. This is the uh, sophomore to publish. Maybe there's been another game published from... Um, uh, relatively new publisher, Fantasia Games. But their previous game was Winter Kingdom Paleo-Americans. When I covered that a couple of years ago, Jen and I were completely blown away and figured, hey, this is probably going to be one of our top 10 games of the year when it comes out. Exact same thing for this. This is set in 1903. It's Vienna. We are fledgling um, psychoanalysts under the tutelage of Sigmund Freud uh, doing a lot of really cool worker placement and rondelle action to treat our patients. This game has so much going on. There are so many plates to keep spinning. You know, managing um, your relationship with Freud and the other psychoanalysts as you hang out in his apartment doing the worker placement stuff. Traveling through the city of Vienna, seeing all the sights and trying to get inspiration. And all of it towards getting the insight you need to analyze the dreams of your patients. And over the course of the game, you get more and more. They get more complex dreams to solve. And it's everything about this game is fantastic. The worker placement is incredibly clever. The way it has a single worker can point to four different worker placement spots on the board. And um, you can put one, two, or three workers to do a level one, level two, or level three version of that action, which is so cool. I love the worker placement. So fresh and original. But the Rondell uh, gameplay, as you're walking around the city, it is equally good. Super duper smart stuff up there. But really... All of that aside, this rich, deep, crunchy, complex year, I'll warn you, it's complex. I said in my run-through for this, my preview, that you know I wouldn't have been surprised if this had been published by Mind Clash Games and designed by Vita Lasarda. It's that good, and I mean that in the best possible way. But um, it also has these beautiful dream cards that feel like they're straight out of Dixit, these surreal images. Art from Andrew Bosley, the real-world art from Vincent Dutre, two of my favorite artists of all times. It's just... I, I, I'm, any other month, this would have been my number one. Any other year, this could have made my number one for the year. It's so good. Jen and I were just absolutely floored by it. And you can watch my preview to see why. But this month, folks, if you were paying attention, you probably already knew what my real number one is going to be. Kind of hard to beat Castles of Burgundy. Um, specifically, the... Um, oh, what do you call it? The... Um, a deluxe special edition, uh, which I was lucky enough to get an early prototype of. It just went uh, live for pre-orders now. And, uh, yo, don't get me wrong, folks. This does not change Burgundy. Your probably $20 copy of Burgundy from Ravensburger with, you know, the, the very simple um, and modest components plays just as good as this. But, jeez louise, the, uh, the the upgrade in terms of art, in terms of presentation, in terms of miniatures, I didn't think I was going to care about these miniatures, but these castles are just too nice not to want to build them. They are so great. And then the, uh, I mean, man, there's an even more uh, expensive one, which I did not have, where you have miniatures for like all the animals and stuff like that too. Very opulent, very decadent almost, and you don't need it. That's not what made me so impressed by this. It is not the fact that uh, the game has an, such an insanely high quality production from Awakened Realms, new publisher, uh, you know, who teamed up with Ravensburger to bring this out. What really impressed me is a simple little change. The tiles that we are drafting, or they get, um, you know, uh, they get added to the board that we take, use our dice to draft. It used to be they were just drawn from a face-down pile. That's how... Uh, 
uh, Burgundy, Castle of Burgundy has always been. Now they're drawn from bags, and the reason for that is because on the back side of these tiles, there's text! And for the, I never realized how much I hated having to constantly check a player aid to know, right, oh, this is the building that looks kind of like a big ring. What's that one do? I don't remember. Let me check the player aid. Now, when you put those tiles out on the board, you just put them face down, and you can read exactly what all the tiles do. I take back what I said ago. This game is so much more playable now because of that one simple production change. I'm absolutely in love with it. It would be very, very difficult for me to ever go back ever, and play the original Castles of Burgundy ever again. Um, I, I gotta get this, because it, it just makes everything sing and play so much smoother, which is something Burgundy needs, because it's such a big, long game. But, oh man, Jen and I had so much fun playing it. This is a game in my top ten games of all time. It's my number one Feld game for my number one designer, Stefan Feld. So it's no surprise it was going to come in number one. And I expected, oh, it's going to be beautiful. Awaken Realms does beautiful productions, I get that. But I didn't expect that they were also going to fix something that I didn't even realize it was broken. Um, you know, the reliance, the heavy reliance on player aids. Now with the text on it, oh my gosh, it's so much better. Now I should warn, I have to do an update, actually. Maybe I'll film that this afternoon for my final thoughts, because a couple things have come to mind or come to my attention since then. One, for people who watched my run-through and thought, oh, I don't like those dice. They seem kind of confusing. One, Jen and I had no problem with them, but it doesn't matter because Awaken Realms has heard the human cry of people, and they're going to redesign the graphic design of the dice so that people shouldn't have a hard time reading them. So, FYI. More importantly, if you pay a little bit extra to get beautiful, wonderful feeling acrylic tiles, which of course you want, you want to pull acrylic tiles out of the bag instead of cardboard tiles. Although the cardboard tiles are nice and big and thick, but you want those acrylic tiles, right? Here's the problem. Those acrylic tiles do not have text on them. And so you have to go back to using a player aid, which the game will come with. So I just want, I, I, I need to do an update to let people know, but in case you missed that update and you catch this, if, if you have ever wanted to try Burgundy, and you've got enough to get a super deluxe. I mean, don't get me wrong. There is nothing wrong with the version of Burgundy you can probably buy new for 20 or 25 euros or pounds or dollars or whatever. Because it's uh, and it, it's still just as great as it's ever been. But this so elevates the game. Plus it adds a, a really great new solo mode with an Otama. Uh, Co-designed by D uh, Dave Turchi. It comes with a new... Uh, extra expansion. It's got all the expansions except for one that have come out over the years. And it's got this new one, the Vineyards, which really is wonderful. Jen, I really enjoyed that quite a bit. We love everything about it. And that's it. My number one game of the month, Castles of Burgundy, the special edition. Okay. Hey, that was a lot of games. Are you not entertained? I think things are going to slow down now for the rest of the year. Uh, November will be a bit slower. Uh, December will be kind of quiet, although that's when I'll be doing my uh, top 10 of the year preliminary and my most anticipated for next year. But that's all in the future. Speaking of the future, though, speaking of December, don't forget, folks, if you're looking for great gift-giving ideas, you can check out my wife's uh, Etsy store at GamerGlass.art and uh, use those codes to get the 22% discount and to get those Everdell cards. But another great place for gifts, of course, for the gamer geeks in your life, is sponsor of the show, Fun Again Games. Thank you very much, as always, Fun Again, for keeping the show going. And uh, I've got one more special thanks to give. All of these people right here uh, who support the show through Patreon, through uh, Twitch subscriptions, through YouTube memberships, would not be able to keep on doing this, never mind 
the fact I wouldn't be able to bring on more people to help me bring even more games to you. So thanks to all of you. And now, a special by-name th- uh, shout-out thank yous to all the high-level backers. In the past, I've done them in alphabetical order, but this time I randomized them a bit just to mix it up. So, Paul Martinez, you get the top spot this month. Thank you, Paul. And Jimmy Schroeder-Hansen, Cobra Misfit, uh, Denmawa 2030CE, Caitlin Albert, Stacy Lee, Marlon Cruz, El Crosso, as he's known to his friends, Isis uh, uh, Samu Leonis, Isis said I'm actually getting his name right. I don't believe, I think he's being polite. Uh, Jay Huber, Jeff Glazen, Dan Halligan, Eric Z, CK Mom, Chris Arnold, Ben, Adrian Dong, Mom Gamer. That's two moms. Oh, I love all the moms out there. Thank you uh, for being my surrogate moms, helping keep the show going. Chris Arnold, Ben, uh, or I'm sorry, I mentioned that Adrian Dong, Mom Gamer. Continuing on, uh, thank you, Charles Hill and Tom Cohen, Sharon Laubach, uh, Marilyn, Graham Wallace, Steve Ercolini, uh, Cameron Zafar, Hans Peter Bach, Selma Lee, uh, Dennis Inti, Marianne Gonzalez, Dave Salvatore, Dr. Fu, love your game, Doctor, Martin Griffin, Victory BHD, Blake Wilson, uh, Davey Davis, Chris Steele, Jerry Reese, Mike Bloom, and Heather Udarian. Thanks to all of you and to all of you, which should be by. If I timed that right. Okay, folks, we will see you again next month. Uh, but in the meantime, hey, if you don't want to miss next month's roundup, go on ahead and subscribe right there. Click on any of these other things. Oh, boy, that was a lot. I got a lot of editing to do, folks. So uh, I'll be uh, getting to that soon. You're gone, right? <laughs>